You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week, and with me are Andy Spey, Will Doran, Danielle Shimtub, and Lauren Horsch. It's been a busy week. This week we had uh, the districts for the legislature finally settled, we think, uh, by a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Uh, Session started up again, and uh, lawmakers uh, announced a huge deal on class size that also had a whole lot of other things attached to it, Uh, and uh, a uh, a Gen X bill, a bill dealing with water pollution, uh, emerged at the legislature as well. And of course, it was also Duke Carolina Week. Uh, And so with me here are two UNC fans and one Duke fan. Uh, So UNC wins that one as well. Uh, And then Lauren is sort of uh, uh, by proxy a UNC fan, I guess. Um, Yeah, I put it out to Twitter this week because as a Minnesota native, I do not have a dog in this fight. And uh, Twitter tells me I have to be a UNC fan. Um, Sorry to the hardcore Duke fans that I know. Uh, specifically a staffer who was wearing a Duke jersey yesterday. Um, so I apologize. But I, I think that was Jeff Hauser. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, so um, go Eels. Yes, and uh, another Midwest native, I don't, uh, I don't really care either. But, uh, uh, but you're, Will, you're probably gloating. Danielle, you're probably gloating today, right? Oh, yeah. I'm wearing my Carolina blue tie, got some blue Argyle socks on. It's great. Danielle, also in Carolina blue, and then Andy actually is too, uh, but uh, we're not sure if he's just ashamed uh, or what exactly is going on. Andy did earlier tweet out a photo of his new puppy in a Duke jersey that was, despite the jersey, very adorable. So, uh, And so before we get into all the politics news this week, um, we're going to talk briefly about something uh, with sort of a connection uh, to, uh, definitely with a connection to Carolina athletics. So Andy... Um, despite being a Duke fan, uh, you did uh, play the role of neutral fact checker on Carolina this week and uh, take a look at a claim related to uh, their athletic director. So uh, what was the claim, first of all, before we get into, um, and then we can talk a little bit about what the response to your inquiries about it uh, was. But first, what was the claim? I'm not going to lie. In November, when I saw Jane Stansel's story coming out of the Board of Governors, I saw an opportunity to fact check the team that I hate so much. Uh, They said that athletic director Bubba Cunningham, at his old salary, was $705,000, as in uh, 705-000, six digits, which maybe someday in another life I'll make. Uh, 700? You think you'll make 700? In another life, yeah. Maybe there's an alternative universe where journalists are paid. uh, The media elite. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, at this meeting, um, some people were upset that Bubba was getting a raise, which, by the way, was $200,000. His his raise was $200,000, so that puts him up to $900,000 per year. As you can tell, I found that to be very surprising and uh, egregious when I heard someone say uh, uh, it was the it was Haywood Cochran who I think is the the chairman of the board of trustees. He said that 
the 705 number was uh, not at market, not even close to what uh, Bubba Cunningham would be worth uh, out on the market if he were, say, a free agent or whatever for, as an athletic director. So uh, I thought to myself, why don't I just fact check these people? Uh, what better way to uh, you know, troll UNC fans than to fact check them? And now, uh, I ha clearly I have bias, but I was not going into it with an end goal in mind. I really did want to know what is the going rate for a good athletic director. So uh, I called around. We, there are agencies that uh, uh, have obviously like attorneys and researchers, and they look into this sort of stuff, and they represent some of these ADs. They're, they're agents. And um, basically, and we also reached out to Jay Billis, ESPN commentator and former Duke basketball player, Duke alum, uh, and everyone said that Bubba helped lead UNC through this scandal while also fundraising ex extremely effectively uh, to the point where they have enough money to build f new facilities for non-revenue sports and uh, you know, you know, basketball and football are doing well too. So they said, you know what, he is worth more than that. There are only so many athletic directors across the country at, um, at, at such large schools with this kind of academic reputation, scandal or not, you know, most people, UNC still has a great reputation. Um, and so they thought he could definitely get a lot more than 705 uh, on the market. And so we rated that mostly true, that he was not even close to what his market rate would be. You had kind of an interesting exchange with uh, two of the trustees of UNC as you were looking into all this. Uh, so, uh, what did uh, Dwight Stone have to say when you asked him uh, about backing up uh, the claim? So, when, when I first heard the quote about Bubba not being at market rate, um, I reached out to the Board of Trustees because I wanted to know, you know, uh, as, as per PolitiFact uh, policy, the, the burden of proof and proving a claim to be true or false falls on the person who made the claim. And so I reached out saying, hey, do you guys have evidence that Bubba's worth this much? I thought they might have like a folder of his accomplishments somewhere, you know, and perhaps, you know, a dossier of uh, good information on other AD salaries. Uh, but that is not what they sent me in the email. Instead, uh, Dwight Stone, one of the trustees, uh, told me, that there's this quote, there's this thing called Google, and you can find a lot of good things on there. Um, and sort of brushed me off. And I thought, wow, that's interesting, Consi you know, considering that I'm probably going to report what you say. But anyway, shout out to Dwight Stone uh, for uh, giving me more material for my fact check. Um, but yeah, I. I did use the Google machine, and it proved uh, it proved them right after all. Google is a wonderful thing. All right. Uh, well, so uh, let's talk about sessions. So, uh, Lauren, the uh, big omnibus bill came out this week, uh, dealing with all num all manner of things, class size, um, the pipeline uh, fund, and uh, the election sports. Um, so let's talk about each one of those uh, separately here, but. Um, the first thing was the huge news was that uh, this long-standing debate over class size um, may finally be resolved. This has been going on for more than a year. 
Um, the legislature reduced class size, required school districts to reduce class size, and then schools uh, complained that they weren't going to be able to do it without firing or laying off uh, PE teachers, art teachers, music teachers. Uh, they just didn't have the money, they said. The legislators uh, in the House were receptive to that, but uh, in the Senate were uh, basically said, uh, you know, they either they have the money or we don't really know that they don't have the money, we don't have good enough data. Um, so uh, all of a sudden this week, that all seems to be resolved. So what actually happened? Yeah, so as you said, these uh, these smaller classroom sizes were for classrooms K through 3, and so they were supposed to be starting uh, this fall, fall of 2018. Um, but now those smaller class sizes will be phased in over four years. And during that four-year time period, we're also going to be seeing uh, $61 million being funneled into school districts to make sure we can fund those special teachers. And those are the teachers who are um, PE teachers, music teachers, art teachers, because um, that's one thing you see, you know, if you're a frequent user of Twitter, you'll see hashtag classroom or class size chaos. Um, everyone makes, <coughs> excuse me, um, everyone wants to make sure that, um, you know, we still have these art and PE classes because um, that makes a well-balanced child. Um, but also included in this, um, and we'll talk a little bit about, about it later, um, but it takes uh, fi the $58 million mitigation fund um, from the Atlantic Coast Pipeline uh, deal, and it allocates that money to... Um, school districts in the eight counties where the uh, pipeline will be running through. Um, and so that plays into a larger story. Do you want to just go straight into that? Yeah, well, so yeah, let's talk about the, the um, pipeline. But uh, first of all, so for the class size issue, Democrats, Republicans, everybody's on board with this? Mostly, you saw, uh, we did have one vote today in the, um, in the Senate. And so five people voted against it. I don't have the exact who voted against it. Um, but there's a lot of talk of, you know, why are we tacking, you know, these other things onto a classroom size bill when we should be, you know, celebrating a good fix? Um, and it was, you know, something they've been working on for months, and Democrats have wanted it. Republicans have said they wanted it, but again, they needed to wait for that data. Um, so it was kind of a clash on the floor where people were arguing, like, you know, in essence, people see it as this bill was holding classroom size, you know, fixes hostage by having the election boards and the pipeline stuff in there, too. Yeah, so let's talk about the pipeline. So uh, Governor Cooper uh, announced a couple weeks ago that uh, his administration had approved a permit for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which is going to run through eight counties in eastern North Carolina. And uh, on the same day, he announced a new fund that uh, the companies building the pipeline, Dominion and uh, Duke Energy, may, uh, would be paying into. And um, that fund, he said, uh, would go toward... Um, mitigation of environmental uh, problems that the pipeline might cause. And um, Republicans jumped on this as a, basically a slush fund because the governor will be able to control it. It'll be outside the normal uh, budget process. Uh, and then this week, uh, they ha added on uh, a, a new a complaint because uh, Cooper announced his new legislative director, Lee Lilly, and uh, this is a person who's a former lobbyist uh, for Dominion. Uh, and so uh, Lily came before a committee this week uh, to introduce himself and, uh, and what happened there. Yeah, so there are a lot of levels to this. Um, just going back to that $58 million uh, mitigation fund, 
there's some issues with that because the legislature, as laid out by the Constitution, is the body that gives out the money and decides how it's spent, not the governor. So they're arguing there's some constitutional questions there, whether or not the governor can have that money, which is why you saw it pop up, pop up in the bill for the classroom size fix. But beyond that, they also are not sure how legally bond, binding um, a memorandum of understanding is, and that just, you know examines how that $58 million can be spent for mitigation purposes. This is the deal that Cooper yeah. signed with... Cooper did not Fed. sign it. One of his uh, top lawyers did. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so it's just, it's like a three or four page document outlining how the money can be spent. And legislative leaders took some ire with that. They wanted to know, you know, who actually is in charge of that money. Where does it come from? Where does it go? That sort of thing. Um, and nonpartisan staff, so these are staff members who aren't tied to, you know, Democrats or Republicans. You know, they said they don't know how, you know, how legally binding the memorandum of understanding is, uh, nor do they know who's in charge of the money once it is there. Uh, Cooper's people have said that it'll be a board of directors, um, but that's, again, we don't know what's going to happen because then we brought uh, Mr. Lilly forth to the joint appropriations meeting, so that's when we had both House and Senate members there to discuss uh, House Bill 90, which was the omnibus bill that had the classroom size fix uh, and all sorts of other things in it. Um, so there, Lily came up expecting, you know, a couple couple minutes, hey, hi, this is what I do, nice to meet you, I'll see you around. It was not that. It was... Although if you really expected that, that well, he hasn't he wasn't paying attention. To the I mean, news he's only been here like before. he's been he's been here five. He was there five days. Today is the sixth day, so he's very fresh. Um, but Democrats essentially called it an ambush, and I was in the room. It was a very tense situation. Democrats were getting up and talking with one another to strategize because it became almost a cross examination in a courtroom of, you know, how involved were you with this mitigation fund. Um, were you part of the permitting process? And I mean, this guy wasn't. He, he said, you know, I'm familiar with the deal, but I was not part of Cooper's team when this happened. I don't know, you know, the terms of this and that. Um, and so a lot of it was just him saying, I can't say, or, you know, I'd have to check with someone else. I know a lot of Republicans had issue with that uh, logic of his, that he didn't know anything about the pipeline here because he was lobbying for this pipeline at the federal level. Yes, because he said, was with Dominion. Right. And they said, you know, you probably know more about this than anyone else. You know, how how would you not know about the North Carolina angle of it, which was obviously a, a key part of it. You know, if North Carolina hadn't got along with this, you know, the pipeline's basically... Yeah, because it's 600 you know. miles here in North Carolina. Um, but yeah, so as Will said, that, you know, he would have known about some aspects of it, you would think, because he was lobbying for a natural gas company, I do believe, Dominion. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so it, it got very volatile. Um, were you listening in well at all? Were you yeah. Listening? Yeah, it was, it was volatile. Um, there were not happy lawmakers in that room. And I mean, a lot of people were also concerned with the provisions that said, you know, this is a voluntary fund. They were very, they're very strict on the fact that it is a voluntary fund that we are going to get. But if the permits fall through, we have to give the money back. So they were really harping on that. You know, how can it be voluntary if, you know, in the end we have to give it back because permits fall through. Um, it was just very, very chaotic. Well, yeah, and that's a, obviously a huge point of contention yeah. is, you know, what were the circumstances under which this company gave the $58 million? You know, did they just, you know, give it out of the goodness of their heart because, you know, they know that they are going to be crossing all these streams and wetlands and there is going to need to be some environmental mitigation? Or did they get it 
to what the Republicans are saying, essentially buy this permit from the state. Yeah, and, and, and they're very valid questions because the optics are not good. Like, getting the permits and then announcing the mitigation fund and then having this guy come in from Washington who was, like, an oil and gas lobbyist, the optics are awful. Um, so, I mean, they're all valid questions, and we don't have answers. We might get a lawsuit out of this. Who knows? But I don't think we're going to hear the last of that mitigation fund. Well, and I think Cooper's office understands that the optics aren't great either. When you saw the uh, the press release that came out from them, it didn't even mention that he had been a lobbyist for this company. It, you know, it said that he was the, I think he was the legislative director for G.K. Butterfield, yeah, the U.S. Point. rep, but that was, I think, six or seven years ago, something like that, yeah. and then it kind of skipped over. And then, and then they called it political shenanigans. Right. Yeah, yeah political so. shenanigans is the... Uh, the take now from Cooper's office. Yeah, and so the other thing that uh, Cooper, uh, at least Democrats were complaining were shenanigans is that they also included in the bill uh, a change to the election boards. And we've been through several versions of this. They uh, merged, first the Republicans merged the Elections and Ethics Board and changed the membership. A court struck that down, so they came back and changed it again. Um, and then a court again uh, struck down the latest version of it. So here we are back again a third time. Um, having a new version of the uh, the merged board, um, Lauren, did you take a look at what this uh, what this new board would look like? What what's the what's the difference between the uh, the new version they've come up with and what they had before? Uh, I haven't looked a lot into this, but uh, there is one key difference, and it's one person. Um, so in previous iterations, this board would be eight members. Four Republicans, four Democrats, and you would need five or six members to get a majority. Uh, that, under House Bill 90, would change to be nine members, where you get four Republicans, four Democrats, and that ninth member would be either someone who's an unaffiliated uh, voter or someone from a third party. Um, and I do believe, as I was talking with other members of the press corps, um, that person gets appointed by the other members of the board. Yeah, I think the other members come up with a couple names and give them to the governor yeah. who would then name that person, yeah. Um, so it could bring up some of this, some of the issues that have been brought up before where the board might deadlock. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's one of the objections or not, but uh, um, the, I guess the Republicans would say that it's now uh, in, you know, an odd number of, of people on the board so that they could, uh, they could approve uh, um, changes to um, poll hours and um, things like that. Um, so I guess that still leaves open the question about how the, the boards are structured at the county level. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. And, and I think we're even still waiting for a ruling from some, like a three-judge panel right. to determine, you know, what it means because, we, you know, the board changed last uh, December 2016, um, and so that was going through the courts, and the Supreme Court just ruled, and now the three-judge panel have to determine what that Supreme Court ruling actually means for that law. So we don't know what we have. It's very confusing. As, as with a lot of things that's going on, going through the courts right now. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, you got three very different things in this bill, but it did pass uh, overwhelmingly. And Danielle, um, after the vote in the Senate today, um, you spoke with uh, Senator Erica Smith um, about the bill, and I believe she was one of the ones who opposed it, right? Actually, she did end up voting oh, for she, it, she but she, okay. yeah, but on the floor she kind of uh, was explaining sort of the challenges that Democrats had in, in voting for this bill because, um, like the other Democrats, she wanted the class size portion of it, but had, took issue with kind of combining the, thre the three issues together. So what, what pushed her over the edge into voting for it? 
So she basically said that the class size issue was just the most important of the three and was really critical for her to, for her constituency to address. But, okay. you know, she definitely said that they were they were playing politics with the pipeline and the elections board. Okay. And you got a, a clip of her, which we'll, uh, we'll go listen to right now. The concerns that were articulated on the floor were not only illegitimate, but they were unnecessary and they were, um, for lack of a better way to describe it, they were just insidious. They were trying to imply some unethical conduct on behalf of our governor. And by one of the chamber members violating our rules that you cannot make a derogatory statement about a member in the chamber to question Senator Chaudhry and say you have a higher commitment to your governor than you do to the children of um, the state with the class size fix. And so I believe that that was just an opportunity to politicize this vote and create innuendo that there was some sort of quid pro quo that was negotiated um, into this deal to receive the permits for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And I think that they were treading very, very dangerously um, on the edge of trying to implicate some foul play. And um, I certainly think that that was unethical and those discussions and questions should not have been raised. Um, we, we all know there are environmental impacts and it is clear from the articulation of the memorandum of understanding what that funding was going to be for. So the questions were unwarranted and in my opinion they were unethical and it was almost you know just slanderous just trying to point foul play where there was not foul play. And the other uh, big move that the legislature made this week was coming out with a new uh, bill on Gen X. And Will, uh, the House had previously unanimously passed uh, a uh, bill that would help deal with Gen X water pollution. But um, the Senate had said, no, um, it's a waste of money. Um, we're not going to do that. We need more uh, data anyway. And um, it didn't seem like they were necessarily going to take anything up, at least not until the um, they come back for good in May. Um, so what changed? Well, I think what changed is this realization that, you know, people really want to see some sort of action on this. And, you know, fighting water pollution isn't a political issue. And I think, you know, people in the Senate kind of realized that, you know, hey, if you can't really act on this quickly, especially after the House, you know, unanimously did something that, you know, people are going to remember that. Um, and so they decided to, uh, to get something up and running. Um, basically the timeline that we've seen in the past month is, like you said, House passes this bill. Um, Phil Berger and some other higher-ups in the Senate were not a big fan of the bill because uh, they said uh, because it spent money on things they didn't think it needed to spend money on, so they wouldn't let the Senate vote on it last month. Uh, they changed their minds, came back, um, had a new version of the bill uh, that made some pretty significant changes from the House bill. On Wednesday, I was at a committee where uh, some Democrats, including Erica Smith and also uh, Angela Bryant and uh, Mike Woodard, uh, had some pretty major complaints about the bill, um, and it, it got pretty heated in that committee. And then, uh, so they took a day, took Thursday, and made some tweaks to the bill, brought it up Friday, made some amendments basically based on the Democrats' complaints. Um, but that still wasn't really good enough for the Democrats. They said that the changes didn't go far enough. They still thought that uh, 
this Senate version of the bill was injecting politics into the process more than the House version of the bill was, and they didn't appreciate that. And so they actually didn't end up voting for it, even after they got some of the things that they had been asking for. Um, but it still passed anyways, and so now it goes back to the House. And I believe the House's next voting day is on Tuesday, so early next week people should uh, keep their eyes peeled for that and see see what uh, people in the House think of, think of this. Um, like I said, it does make some pretty big changes. Um, one thing was that DEQ has said that they need this piece of equipment called a mass spectrometer to check the water here for uh, Gen X and other what are called emerging contaminants. Basically these just completely unregulated chemicals that haven't really been tested, aren't really that well known to scientists and have you know, potential health concerns. Right now, the state has really no idea what all of those types of chemicals are even in the water, how much of them is in the water, so they say, hey, we need this piece of equipment. So the House gave DEQ the money to go and buy that, hire some scientists. The Senate took all of that out. They said, no, you don't need that. Um, and they said, you know, look, UNC Chapel Hill has the Gillings Public Health School, which is a great school. They've got scientists there who are already trained on how to look for stuff. They have this equipment. Just talk to them, use their stuff. Um, and apparently UNC is on board. Um, we had uh, Brad Ives from the NC Policy Collaboratory, uh, which is a new group at UNC, uh, come to the legislature on Wednesday and say, that uh, Senate leaders have already spoken to Chancellor Carol Folt. She's in support of this. She wants to help out and, you know, go for it. Um, this policy collaboratory that Ives is from is actually one of the sticking points that Democrats have. Um, one of the uh, upper people in that group is Jeff Warren, who's a former science advisor to Phil Berger. And there was a lot of complaints in 2016 uh, when the legislature created this group, that it was maybe going to kind of inject politics into some of the scientific and environmental research coming out of the universities. Um, haven't really heard much of it between 2016 and now. Um, but, uh, yeah, that like I said, that was another thing the Senate bill did. It gave this group some duties that had, the House version had given to a group that uh, Cooper had appointed the scientists of, so Democrats were complaining, oh, you're just playing politics and just trying to, you know, kind of, you know, mess up the governor, kind of drag him down, and we don't like this. And a lot of the same complaints you heard, honestly, about that class size bill, that, you know, you're doing this thing that normally we would support, and we could get both sides rallying around this thing, but you're making it political. Why are you doing that, was the Democrats' complaint. And uh, they're going to have the collaboratory do some of this work, so the collaboratory is going to use its own budget to, to do some, and um, they're going to borrow some equipment from uh, UNC uh, or possibly the EPA, I guess. So, um, But they still gave them some money, gave some money to DEQ under the new bill. Um, so what is the, what is the that actually going to pay for? Yeah, and this was um, part of some of the Senate Republicans' uh, recognizing the Democrats' complaints. Um, previously, they had given $2.4 million to DEQ to do some studies, and Democrats had said, you know, why are we just, you know, telling them to write up these big, long studies that, you know, who knows how many people are ever going to read these, how much good they're going to do, why don't we do more to actually accomplish stuff? 
And so they said, okay, we'll take $800,000 of that and DEQ can use that to hire people to deal with the huge, huge, huge backlog of permit applications that they have and to go out and, you know, go out into the field and take samples and get them analyzed and things like that, kind of speed along the process. Um, with the permits right now, when a company's permit expires, it can keep on, you know, polluting, doing things that it was permitted to do, even without it having been, you know, reaffirmed by DEQ. And so if, if it takes six months, you know, and DEQ in the process figures out, oh, wait, we shouldn't, you know, give this company its permit back or we need to ask them to change some things. Well, you know, that was six months that the company has kept doing all those things that it turns out they weren't supposed to do. So uh, so there is some money in there to uh, kind of speed along that permitting process, turn through some of that backlog. The, the problem Democrats had with that is the money's not recurring. It ends next year. And so after this current fiscal year, that $2.4 million goes away. And if you look at the budget, DEQ's budget actually gets cut by another million dollars in uh, in the 2019 fiscal year. So Democrats were, you know, not happy that the legislature wasn't willing to make this money permanent. It's just a one-time thing. Okay. And Danielle, that's what uh, Senator Smith talked to you about as well. So um, going back to a, another little clip from her, um, set that up uh, if you would. Um, what, did, what were you asking her about? Yeah, so she um, voted, is one of the Democrats who voted no on this bill, and she, she was kind of reiterating what you just talked about, the f um, not having enough funding for DEQ, and she basically was talking about the regulatory power of DEQ and how putting this in the hands of the university to kind of conduct this testing doesn't give them the power to actually regulate. Um, so we'll go now to what she has to say. The Water Safety Act, um, I voted no on this provision for several reasons. The first reason is that it appropriates funding to the Department of Environmental Quality, but it hand ties the DEQ into doing what they need to do. We all know that there is a backlog, a 41% backlog in permitting because DEQ does not have the staff that it needs in which to do its job. There have been 73 positions cut from Department of Environmental Quality um, since since 2013, not only has the funding been cut, but the positions have been cut. Um, DEQ has made request after request after request for the proper um, funding so that they can purchase a mass spectrometer. Um, they also need to um, be able to hire the specialists and the scientists and the professionals that are needed to operate the mass spectrometer. Not only just to be able to identify the current issue with the targeted um, chemicals, targeted pollutants, and that would be the poly and perfluoral um, alkyl, also known as the compound Gen X, but there are 80,000 compounds out there that have not yet been identified, and by giving DEQ the funding to be able to use for targeted and non-targeted um, studies of these compounds that are putting pollutants in our water and you know across the state um, in our air 
I feel that this is a matter of North, the safety of North Carolina citizens. And so when you put that appropriation, you have to give DEQ the power to be able to do this testing and monitor. They have the regulatory authority. The um, collaboratory does not have the regulatory authority. The UNC system does not have the regulatory authority. So why would you then float a bill to address an issue and provide the funding, the bulk of the funding, to entities that have no regulatory authority for protecting the constituents of North Carolina. It just baffles me. And um, that was my primary reason for voting no. Um, un, un, contradicting and, and, and in contrast to what was stated on the floor, again, more political posturing, it was not because we questioned the capability of the UNC staff. Um, no one questioned their credentials. We questioned the ability to do the immediate and emerging testing with the contracts they already have in place with the only three employees that they have working in the lab and they only have one of those mass spectrometers that can do both the targeted and non-targeted and so when you look at the bill in totality, it does not go far enough to helping DEQ address the permitting backlogs and to be able to have the professionals and the staff that they need to monitor our water quality. And then it further um, creates so much discrepancy in having so many entities involved in a process as a regulatory process that they have no control over. And last, before we go to headliner of the week, um, we alluded to this earlier, but there was uh, a Supreme Court order this week um, that did pave the way for the uh, legislative districts to be set. And uh, basically what the court did is they kind of uh, split the baby. They took the districts in Wake and Mecklenburg County uh, that the special master, the independent map maker, had drawn and said, um, no, we're going to go back to the districts that the legislature had drawn in t August 2017. Um, but then with the other handful of districts that the special master uh, drew, they are going to allow those to be used. Um, so, you know, in about four or five uh, districts there, um, they are going to use the ones that the special master had drawn because the courts had uh, found the, uh, the ones drawn in, in August uh, to, be, to have uh, constitutional problems. Um, so, uh, Danielle, that sort of sets up um, a really ch changing, a shifting landscape for candidates um, for the for the House and Senate. I mean, they they've had uh, the, um, the trouble probably even keeping track of where they're going to run and who their voters are going to be. Um, so, you talked to a few of them, and um, you wrote a story with uh, with Lynn Bonner and Jim Morrill, who also talked to others. Um, and uh, what are some of the things that that you're seeing out there? There's definitely a lot of uncertainty among candidates, um, and, and of course there, there has been during this whole process, and they've, one candidate even told me, I just don't go to the outer fringes of my district because I just don't know where they're going to be. And now uh, the Democrats are asking the state court to, um, to have the special master districts be in for the, for the districts in Wake and Mecklenburg as well. So there's a question of whether the, the 2017 drawn districts are actually going to be the districts. But if they are, um, we did speak to a, two Democrats running against seven-term Rep. Nelson Dollar, and both of them actually are not in their district anymore. So he that's an example of um, what they say is basically creating a district that allows him to run with little 
challenging challengers. Um, so I believe Farrell spoke with Lynn and she said that she would consider moving. Um, Calabria, the other Democrat, has not decided what he's going to do there. Um, so they're both kind of figuring out their plans. A lot of other candidates um, may not have moved around, but they still sort of don't know, like I said, the edges of their district and kind of what they're going to do from there campaign-wise. Yeah. And you talked to some of uh, the potential challengers to uh, to Chris Malone, who's yeah. another House member from Wake County, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And they're still in the district. Yeah, there's three of them. They're all still in the district. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Terrence Everett is, is sort of the one that's the, um, he's mm -hmm. the one that, went against Malone last time mm -hmm. around and what did he yeah um, wh what's his situation so is he um, he's still in it but he's gonna have to meet some different voters this time around yeah yeah he's still in it um, got an email not from him directly but from someone who works with him ca his campaign and they basically said that you know they are definitely upset with the ruling and that you know there's been so much uncertainty around this but he is still able to run and is going to run against Malone okay all right uh, we'll stay tuned on that, and we'll come right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Headliner of the Week. 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 Who's hot? And we're back with Domecast and everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week. Uh, Lauren Horsch, why don't you go first? Who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with um, the Dean of the House of Representatives, H.M. Uh, Mickey Mishaw. Um, he is retiring from the North Carolina House of Representatives after, this will be his 21st consecutive term, but I think in total it'll be 24, 23. That man is amazing. Um, He's just whip smart. Um, he's 87. Um, I live in Durham, so I've known him as one of the representatives from Durham. So when I was a reporter there, I frequently had to see what he was up to in the house. Um, but he's a legend in Durham. He was a uh, civil rights icon and good friends with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you know, Martin Luther MLK stayed at his family's house uh, when he was in Durham. So uh, Mickey is finally retiring after it'll be, no, 20 term. A lot of years, 47, <laughs> like close to five decades. Um, and he's just, he's well-respected from both Republicans and Democrats, young and old. He's the only person who can get up in the House and speak, and everyone stops. Like, it's the only time I see no one doing anything, and they just sit there and watch. And they want to know what he's going to say, because it's usually the smartest thing that's said during a debate. Or it's going to be him yelling at everyone and being like, what are y'all doing? Um, and he, he's just, he's a fountain of knowledge and I'll be sad to see him go because I sit on the democratic side when I'm on the house. So I frequently have to sit near him and just hear him, you know, have some jokes with his seat mate. So it'll, I'll be sad to see him go, but it's a well-earned retirement. And for many years before they were, Democrats were in the minority, he was a, he was, he was the a senior budget chairman. So he yeah. was pow very powerful, was able to steer money. Um, to um, what he wanted. And, mm -hmm. um, and he talks so. about those days a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in the majority. <laughs> All right. Uh, Representative Michelle in the hat for headliner of the week after um, being in the legislature since 1973, right? Is that the... I think it was 1973. 47 years. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> so, uh, 
crazy amount of time. Um, all right, uh, on to Danielle Shimtop. Who's your headliner of the week? So I'm going to pick Hillary Clinton because today's National Pizza Day, and there's a connection, I promise. Um, so it's like that Pizzagate thing. <laughs> oh, that so, has a no, connection, though. No, no, <laughs> not that on, one. Like, not that pizza Wars, thing. Uh, Another <laughs> pizza thing. Um, a research analyst who's an NC State grad came out with a little graphic on how much the presidential candidates in 2016 spent their campaign money on pizza, and Hillary Clinton spent the most. She spent $9,046 on pizza from her campaign money. Um, the second most was Ben Carson, surprisingly, uh, $3,700. So there you go, Hillary Clinton, most spent on pizza. I've, I've got to ask, does she have numbers for 2012? Because I want to know how much Herman Cain spent on pizza. <laughs> <laughs> All from one company. <laughs> And Trump only spent twelve hundred. So. Oh wow. He uh, was at McDonald's, I guess. Yeah. 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 Eating his cheeseburgers. Well, we can talk about that on National Cheeseburger Day. <laughs> All right. So uh, Hillary Clinton uh, back in the news uh, and uh, up for headliner of the week. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner of the week? Well, speaking of Herman Cain, <laughs> which is not a phrase that gets uttered it's very often on podcast. <laughs> I, my headliner is um, Scott Dacey. Uh, he is a Craven County Commissioner, and he is uh, announcing that he is running against uh, Representative Walter Jones to represent Eastern North Carolina in Congress. Um, Dacey has been endorsed by Herman Cain and Mike Huckabee and says that he is all in on Donald Trump and is running against Jones uh, from the right. He doesn't think that Jones is a conservative enough Republican um, and hasn't embraced Trump uh, as much as he should have. And uh, Daisy's quote in our story from uh, Brian Murphy recently was, I'll be the very best lobbyist Donald Trump could possibly have serving in Congress to advance his agenda. So he's just putting it all out there. Um, you know, he's... And he actually is a lobbyist. He is a lobbyist. He's a lobbyist for uh, some Native American tribes. Um, and actually, um, pretty notably, uh, Native Americans... Uh, tended to support Trump in the 2016 election. Robeson County went for Trump, and it's 33 or more percent Native American. Usually goes for Democrats. But yeah, for almost Trump always goes Democrats, but went for Trump. So maybe he thinks that, you know, he's got this kind of, you know, hidden base of support out east that, uh, that Jones hasn't tapped into. Jones obviously, um, you know, has, you know, his, his dad was in Congress for forever. He's been in Congress for forever. Um, everyone in East North Carolina knows who he is. Uh, a lot of support among members of the military. He's done a lot uh, for Camp Lejeune and that area. Um, he took some flack earlier this year. He voted against the uh, the tax cut bill. Um, he said he voted against it because it increased the deficit. And if Obama had submitted that bill, he said every single Republican would have been against it. And he was, you know, perfectly morally fine being against it, even though Trump had done it because it you know it increased the deficit by 1.5 trillion. Um, so, you know, Jones kind of stakes out this more libertarian wing of the Republican Party, um, kind of like Rand Paul in the Senate, you know, uh, very much against deficits, skeptical of military intervention and continue our wars and things like that. Um, and obviously, uh, Mr. Dacey does not think that, uh, you know, that is in line with the views of uh, the Republican Party these days in the Trump age. 
So I guess we'll see come this November. And Brian had an interesting nugget in the um, story that uh, Jones is actually the Republican in the House who's um, most likely to vote against uh, Trump and Trump's priorities, um, or, or had the uh, um, was you know the, whatever the percentage of time that he voted with Trump was uh, was the lowest, um, according to I think Five Thirty Eight, who put that analysis together. Um, so definitely kind of an independent-minded uh, streak to Jones. All right, right, so Scott Dacey is in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Andy Spain, uh, last but not least, who's your headliner? Uh, I'm going to go with Amazon uh, because well, we have multiple uh, headlines each week with uh, their company name. Um, this week we had uh, maybe two or three stories, but the one that stood out to me was this headline. Think traffic stinks in the triangle, not compared to other Amazon finalists. And then it goes on to say that uh, Raleigh, according to was it Enrix, which I, I don't know what that stands for, I-N-R-I-X, they collect GPS data and uh, track how long people spend stuck at traffic lights and things like that. Raleigh comes in number 83 in the country for worst traffic. We are 83rd. Uh, meanwhile, uh, other... Uh, the other 20 finalists for Amazon's HQ2, which they're going to presumably build on the East Coast, or in Austin, if you believe conspiracy theories that uh, that Super Bowl commercial tipped their hand. Um, LA is number one, New York is two, Atlanta four, Miami five, Washington six, Boston seven, Chicago eight, Dallas ten, uh, and then, and so on. Um, so, uh, my point here is, you know, if you go to a Raleigh City Council meeting, you'll hear over and over again how new development is going to bring all this traffic and noise and blah, 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 blah. Everyone everywhere thinks they live in a place with really bad traffic. Right. And, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, 40 is terrible, and it sucks, and I worry when my friends and family get on 40 and drive to Durham during rush hour because it can be, and can be dangerous. But, overall, uh, traffic is not bad here. It is, and I, I'm quite frankly sick of hearing about it. Hot takes from yeah. Andy Spade. <laughs> Don't talk to me after 10 a.m. <laughs> when I commute in. I think any Amazon workers uh, coming here from Seattle would be uh, would be would be fine with this level of traffic. Yes, um, but uh, Amazon in the hat for headliner of the week again. Uh, we'll probably have that uh, coming up again and again because, uh, like you say, it keeps uh, it stays in the news. Um, so we have Mickey Michaud, Scott Dacey, Hillary Clinton, and Amazon in the hat for headliner of the week. And it is no contest. Uh, I'm going to go with Representative Michaud, who uh, is an icon in the General Assembly, has been there since um, any one of the five of us were born, um, quite a bit before some of us, uh, and, uh, uh, and is uh, going into retirement. Um, and he's going to stay out through the end of this term. Yeah, so right? he will finish out his entire term. So um, this upcoming election, we will see a brand new person in the seat. Yeah, and um, as somebody was, uh, Jonathan Kapler was, I think, was pointing out on Twitter, 
It's been a lot of turnover for that Durham delegation. I pointed it out first. You pointed it out first. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> as a Durhamite, I did notice. So we've had a lot of turnover in that Durham, um, especially in the House. Uh, we did have the late Paul Lubke pass away, I believe, in October 2016. Um, and then Larry Hall was appointed to be the Secretary of the Department of Military and Veteran Affairs. Um, so we have two new people in those seats. And then with uh, Mickey leaving, we will have a third. So... And those were all big people who had been there for years. Um, so, a lot as, of change. As New first pointed out by Lauren Horsch on Twitter. Exclusive. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of turnover. And Lauren, uh, because uh, you have uh, perceptive thoughts like that, uh, you are our winner in Headliner of the Week. Thank you. Uh, is this the second week in a row? I can't remember. Did I did not win last week. I don't think so. I can't remember who won. All right. Brian, we'll have to ask Brian Anderson. All right, uh, that's it for Headliner of the Week, and that's it for Domecast. Uh, catch us next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.